Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. So part of me, you know, is always so, um, I've gotten to the stage in my life and certainly in my profession where I'm so jaded. I'm sure you are as well. I mean, how much... Lying and 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 minimizing of important things can anybody be subjected to before they actually don't believe anything? Yeah, well, that's where we're at, pretty much. But I was looking at a couple of different stories this morning. And, you know, I'm trying to get a little broader in the next couple of weeks because while there are two stories that are front and center for me, there are, are other things that I have, I'm regaining a little bit of interest in, and I'm doing a lot of research. I'm doing a lot of reading, which is great. I mean, I have been, that's the best part of my job, is that I would do this anyway, even if I weren't you know, doing this radio program. But I was looking at some of the reportage, because I'm so tired of how bad the media is. And, and how they'll ignore entire subject matters. If you don't watch CNBC or Fox Business or you don't have somebody in that realm that you believe, you have no clue how much really big stuff is happening behind our backs that are going to affect us and our children and grandchildren for a long time. You know, right now, this uh, economic, Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation event most people could tell you, yeah, it's going on. I think it's in uh, San Francisco. And that'd be the end of the story. You know, if you look at your nightly ABC, NBC, CBS News, that's all it'll say like, oh, they cleaned up the streets of San Francisco so that uh, the dignitaries wouldn't see the homeless people. Oh, that's a story, but it's really not the most important part of the story now, is it? What is important is that uh, our president, Joe Biden, and their president, Xi Jinping, have met outside of this cooperation event. In other words, these are high-level negotiations and communications that are going on that will affect us for maybe ever, but certainly in the immediate and for the first decade after this uh, cooperation summit. There are some things that they're talking about which really we don't know enough about to be intelligent consumers of information. One is AI, artificial intelligence. I know when I bring this up, I get a lot of emails from people who keep telling me not to worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And it's not a matter of worrying. It's a matter of I'm never happy about things I don't really understand. I need more clarity on artificial intelligence and the way it's gonna be used particularly when it comes to national security, but 
you don't hear much about that. Apparently, that is one of the things that the two uh, buddies, and these guys are buddies, don't kid yourself, okay? These two buddies have been talking about uh, how artificial intelligence is going to play out in terms of future national security interests. They're also talking about what kind of restrictions we will either continue with or put on China's access to all of the high-end technology. Because we are innovative, so are they. So is Israel. And to a large extent, so are some other countries that don't get a whole lot of uh, press coverage about it, like India, like Pakistan. So that's going to be part of whatever conversations are happening. Happening, But the most important thing that is going to be discussed, and when I say it's the most important thing, maybe I think it's the most important thing because it affects every of these other subjects that I already mentioned, whether it's artificial intelligence or technology or high-end technology, and that is the amount of fentanyl that is flowing into this country. China is directly responsible for the fentanyl. Now, I know everybody says, but it's coming across the southern border. Yes. And there's lots of processes that happen in Mexico and in other uh, third world Central American countries. But the actual fentanyl, much like heroin, that's coming out of China. And I believe that China has always believed that they could take us down through the, our people, through the average person. It's not going to be, we always like to think, oh my God, there's going to be this war and these battleships are going to be fighting each other and we're going to be dropping nuclear weapons and that's how we think. But there are other ways that you defeat great nations. And I believe that the flood of fentanyl into this country and the amount of Americans who have died or have been totally life change, their lives have changed, whether it's because of a family member that was lost, myriad of, of, me, of reasons. If we don't get a handle and we're not able to curb the flow of fentanyl into this country, none of the other stuff's gonna matter. Because this is competition the other things we're talking about, artificial intelligence, high tech, medical technology, all that stuff is, you know, literally, those are competitions that take place between nations. And that's fair. As long as everybody is playing fair, same rules, I get it. But if behind the scenes, you're orchestrating the massive death of young people, that changes the dynamic profoundly. This is a critical global challenge that we face. Uh, you know, you can eat your climate change breakfast, whatever. You know, that may be some big issue for you. And I, I look, I love the environment. I love the water. I love the air. I love all that stuff, just like everybody else. But I don't see climate change as even marginally as important as the narcotics trafficking into my country that is killing an entire generation, literally. And it's not just 
killing. You know, it's funny, and and this is going to sound really maybe in some ways horrible, but it has to be said, and that's my job is to say the horrible stuff. When I was watching the heroin and cocaine crises that happened in this country in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, there was pretty clearly a propensity for poor people, marginal kind of communities, that's what they like to call them, meaning, you know, Hispanics, blacks, uh, whatever, you know, pick your gays, whatever, uh, I don't know, whatever meal of the day we're serving of marginal communities. They were mostly affected by heroin use and, and cocaine use. And then we had the big debate over his crack and cocaine and what's the difference and what are the penalties. And, and those are all very interesting subjects to look at. But this fentanyl stuff, this does not require an impoverished population that gets hooked on the stuff. People die after one use. People die without even using it. I mean, we have documented cases of people dying from exposure to fentanyl who were police officers, first responders, never ingested it, or at least didn't think they were ingesting it, but it gets into the skin, it gets into the atmosphere, into the air they're breathing, and they die. This stuff is really, talk about a global pandemic. I believe fentanyl is a global pandemic. And that better be if not number one on Joe Biden's list, President Biden's list with uh, Xi Jinping, it better be number two because it's going to it's going to affect everything else. I love the way you know Xi Jinping's made his opening remarks today. I listen to that stuff because it's my job and because I'm fascinated by these kinds of men and women who, you know, get into these positions. You know who they bring with them, who's sitting next to them. You know our president's got Janet Yellen. And Anthony Blinken flanking him. That's scary enough, right? But I'm listening to their opening statements. Joe Biden's was just about what you'd expect. Xi Jinping actually said something which I thought was really significant. He said, for large, two large countries like China and the U.S., we do not have the luxury or the option of turning our backs on each other. And then he went on and he said, planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed. My question is, what does success look like to Xi Jinping? Because I'm sure it doesn't look the same as it looks to me, or hopefully to Joe Biden, although who knows. Are they talking about you know, having more direct flights between the U.S. and China? Or are they doing this stupid tap dance around climate issues? Because you know that's coming. It's all going to be about climate, 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 climate. Meanwhile, the, the Chinese government is making all kinds of announcements. The Commerce Ministry last week said that they're going to uh, they're going to spend a lot of energy in this summit to address unequal treatment of foreign businesses in China compared with the treatment of domestic firms which of course has been a big business complaint 
So they're going to use the summit as an opportunity to announce, number one, uh, buying more Boeing 737 MAX aircraft, to which, of course, no, no comment coming from Boeing. The president of China arrived here uh, at uh, yesterday, I don't even remember what time it was, it was early, after, early evening or late afternoon. First time he's been to the United States since that visit to Mar-a-Lago in 2017 when he sat down with President Trump and boy, did we get a lot of uh, crazy news stories about that. Oh, and then they went here and they said this and he said this out loud and Donald Trump and blah. No, we're not hearing any of that stuff now, right? The last time that Xi Jinping met Joe Biden in person was in November of last, was it last year, 2022, um, in Bali. And prior to that, he had not met him, not in his capacity as the president of the United States. And now we have a president who is running for re-election, which still sometimes... Can you imagine being Xi Jinping and having to have a conversation with Joseph Robinette Biden and thinking to yourself, this guy is running again? I, it certainly might seem like a golden opportunity for Xi Jinping to pull some nonsense you know, even if it's just negotiating business deals and getting bad deals for us and good deals for China, hey, why wouldn't you take advantage? If I go into a business and the salesperson they give me is a blithering idiot, I'm going to get the best deal ever. So we'll say. By the way, uh, Chairman Xi, or President Xi, he is in his third term as president. And the way they conduct things in China... He's president for life. Whether they say it or not, that's the truth. Anyway, don't forget to download our app, the 850 WFTL app on your phone or on your uh, laptop computer or your desktop, wherever, so you can always hear the No Restraint podcasts when they come out. You can hear everybody's podcasts, and everybody's got good podcasts for you to listen to. You can also listen to any part of the show you may miss today or missed last week. They're all there. You just go to the Joyce Kaufman podcast page, and you can find all those things. And, and Sharina does a nice job labeling them. So if you're looking for something in particular, you should be able to find it that way. And that's a good app to have. But if you're afraid of having the app, and some people are, they don't want to download any more stuff, right? Then just visit our website regularly. It's 850WFTL.com. You can even participate in contests that way. I'm going to take a break. And I have one segment left to do in this first half of the show. And then at 3.30... Uh, Matt Gates is coming on, Congressman Matt Gates. I got a couple of questions I want to ask him. Yeah, I'm sure you do too, right? If ever there was a, a firebrand and and a and a and a, well, what can I say? I, we we'll see. Um, he's coming on at three thirty. So stay right where you are. All these crazy alien stories can't be true, can they? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. I read a really interesting piece, and I probably won't have time to share the whole thing with you, but uh, I will be speaking tonight at, in Delray at the uh, 
the community civic center, I guess it is, up there in Delray. And one of the, um, you know, I saw that they had sent out a, sort of an invite to people saying that I was going to talk about Islamism and civilization. So it was pretty interesting this more yesterday morning when I read this article about uh, one of my heroines or heroes with a female, um, her decision to become a Christian. And it really, it was a stunning article. Ayan Hersi Ali uh, wrote this op-ed about why I am now a Christian. Now you have to understand, we all know her because she was born and raised in Somalia. She was the victim of female genital mutilation and went completely public with it and went to the Netherlands where she actually got involved in politics in the Netherlands. And I forgot what you're called there, maybe an MP, a member of parliament. And she ended up enduring a ton of death threats. And as a matter of fact, her um, partner in the documentary, I guess it was what it was, that literally opened up the world's eyes to what you know this general genital mutilization really was about. The guy who did that documentary with her was murdered, and it was a pretty big story, Theo Van Gogh, and the death threats started pouring in for her, and she basically had to get out of Dodge or get out of uh, the Netherlands. And so she became what people can call themselves, and I know because I have family members who call themselves this, new atheists. That's how they refer to themselves. And they, it's, it's fascinating to me because it's a total rejection of the concept of God. But you can kind of understand if you're a woman and they perform a clitorectomy on you and say that's because of God, that's God's wishes, you might not want to have any kind of relationship with such a God, right? And so becoming a so-called new atheist um, seemed to make sense for her. And so back in 1927, Bertrand Russell had written a piece called Why I Am Not a Christian. And so she now wrote this op-ed and it's sort of like modeled after that op-ed. And instead of why I'm not a Christian, it is now called why I am now a Christian. And it's just so fascinating. And I talk about this stuff all the time. So I will be talking about it after I talk with Matt Gates again, because I say this all the time. If you don't believe that there is a power greater than yourself, then you're pretty much, uh, you can do whatever you want. You're never going to have to answer to that power. Uh, you don't have any moral compass or any morality that you can speak to. And so how utterly interesting is Hersi Ali's journey from being raised a devout Muslim, rejecting that because of the brutality of the uh, genital mutilation that was performed on her, and then becoming a new atheist, as they refer to themselves, and now declaring you're being a, you know, you're a Christian. Some pretty big questions. And her decision demands some answers. 
Like, can you justify religion on pragmatic grounds or does it require faith? It, the world is more and more secular every day. And we're losing the civilization war that we're in. So maybe she's right. Maybe Christianity actually would serve as the one unifying force in the fight that could give us an upper hand. And if religion doesn't unite us, then what will or what might? <clears throat> so that's, uh, I'm going to talk about that after I talk with uh, Congressman Gates. You do want to hear that one. So stay here right where you are. I'll be right back. All right, and uh, welcome back. As promised, I have in, um, invited Matt Gates. He is the congressman. I hate that term, congressman. I prefer representative. That's what he's supposed to be doing, right? Representing the first district here in Florida. He is a Republican. And man, has he been getting a lot of slings and arrows lately. How are you, sir? Oh, thanks for having me back on the program, Joyce. And I would suggest that those slings and arrows are well-earned as we're trying to <laughs> change Washington, D.C., get our fiscal house in order, and try to get some policies to secure this border. Yeah, well, I don't think that uh, you guys did very well. I'm not saying you personally yesterday, because here we go again. You know, we are just, we seem incapable of holding our own feet to the fire when it comes to the yep. economy. And, and what, you know, what kind of reaction are you getting from the new speaker when you take him these issues? Well, I agree with you that passing a continuing resolution this week was a bad idea for the Congress. I voted against it, but of the 220-some-odd Republicans, uh, we only had 95 vote no. So a majority of the majority of Republicans voted to continue funding Joe Biden's uh, agenda and Nancy Pelosi's policy for an additional 75 days. I met with the speaker today, expressed our, our extreme disappointment in that path, and he assured me that uh, we're working to get January 6 tapes released. We're working to get our single-subject spending bills in the right posture. But as you know, having worked on Capitol Hill, you get uh, against the holidays, and everyone mm. loses their spine, and people are willing to accept these omnibus spending bills that drive us further into debt and that fail to engage in the itemized review of programs that could actually cut spending. So we better get better uh, from Speaker Johnson than what we've had, but I think folks are willing to give him a little bit of runway, uh, mm -hmm. given the fact that he's only been on the job for about you know 20 some odd days. Yeah, no, I happen to like him, and I think that so far he's showing he has a little backbone, but it, it's, a it's a tough group he's dealing with both your group and, and, and the rhinos up there. I mean, nobody gives much. And um, because I'm on the same side as you, I don't want you to give, but uh, <laughs> then nothing's going to happen. And, and that's, that does cause a lot of fear for me. I mean, I'm looking at this meeting in San Francisco today, and, you know, uh, Chairman Ping, Gigi Ping, and, and Joe Biden are old buddies. Like, I'm not excited about this. I'm actually kind of nervous about this meeting. I am as well, uh, and I think, you know, Joe Biden is enduring the discomfort of someone meeting with their banker. Yeah. Uh, it's never always a joyous uh, circumstance when you're meeting with the person who's holding uh, a great deal of your debt, mm. and that is the position we've put ourselves in with China. But remember, it was the Chinese Communist Party that was funding the Biden Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where his staff was, uh, was you know, making big bucks 
and uh, doing the bidding of the Chinese communists and their preparation to take over our government. And if you were looking to advance China and hinder America, you'd be doing exactly the things Joe Biden's doing right now, mm-hmm. crashing our economy, devaluing our dollar, opening our border, and then allowing the poison of fentanyl to come from China and, and killing over 100,000 Americans. I, it's such a staggering number. Like, if anything is killing 100,000 Americans, it should definitely get more attention than we're paying it now. Yeah. Well, and I, I said, if fentanyl is not like the number one subject between these two leaders, I don't know uh, what it'll take to get that on the agenda. Uh, but I got to ask you this question. You know, I'm not one of these people who is unhappy because of the lack of uh, civil dis- decorum in Washington. Like, you know, people are threatening to get into fisticuffs like they did in the Senate yesterday or people elbowing each other in hallways actually is quite appealing to me. I feel like we're kind of like Japan or the UK now where you can have some uh, actual confrontations. But what does it feel like up there now with people elbowing each other? It's weird. And I prefer to win arguments with my words, not with my fists. And I think we ought to have our, our ideas compete rather than engage in some sort of gladiator thunderdome. Uh, so I, I find it a bit off-putting when mm-hmm. people resort to that out of frustration. And frankly, I think that it is reflective of uh, oftentimes people's own failures. Like, take, for example, you know, Kevin McCarthy elbowing Tim Burchett in the back just to try to get a rise out of him. That, that doesn't say anything bad about Tim Burchett. It says something bad about Kevin McCarthy. And the Republican senator, who was the cage fighter, who wanted to fight the Teamsters Union guy, like, I, I wish I'd ever seen that Oklahoma senator that upset about our open border or mm. about the prices we're paying at the pump or groceries. It, it seemed as though he was only really upset when this person was uh, posting negative things about the senator on social media. We've got to put the needs of the people first. That's what these continuing resolutions and kicking the can down the road are really, um, I think, unfortunately facilitate. Yeah. Now, obviously, when I say slings and arrows, I mean, I've been reading articles. uh, Everybody paints you as like this uh, horrific character who got Kevin McCarthy bounced out of there. I don't think Kevin McCarthy ever should have been speaker to begin with, but I certainly wasn't sorry to see him go. Uh, what would they suggest we do when somebody fails to do the job that they have obtained? Should we just keep them? I, I, I'm not sure what they wanted. You're you're bringing logic and reason to congressional uh. leadership disputes, so mm. uh, it may be misplaced given the context. But you know, the grave sin I committed, according to many in the media and even some in my own party, was demanding that Republican lawmakers keep their promises to Republican voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Kevin McCarthy didn't intend to you know, release the January 6th tapes and have a vote on term limits and have a vote on balanced budgets and only uh, you know, fund the government at pre-COVID levels, then he shouldn't have promised those things. Mm-hmm. And admittedly, Mike Johnson hasn't made us similar promises. We've We've uh, you know, installed him as speaker now with the hope that his natural conservatism will, will shine through where McCarthy really didn't have an ideology. But this, people take all of this stuff so personally, Joyce. They, mm-hmm. they get up here and they get so enamored with their own titles and their power. And the bottom line is it's not really about any of us. We're all just sands moving through the hourglass 
the the thing we got to do is identify the real challenges our people are facing and then and work to address those. And so often the lobbyists and special interests in Washington hinder that. They get in the way. It's one of the main reasons why I'm the only Republican in Congress who doesn't take donations from lobbyists or political action committees. And if we get away from them and back to keeping our word, then maybe it won't take tens of millions of dollars to win all of these campaigns, maybe we can win based on the results that that improve the success and prosperity of our constituents. Now you're trying to use logic in an environment where it doesn't hold. (laughs) Listen, we can do this theoretically. It just doesn't seem to work out practically. Let me ask you about 2024. I mean, obviously, the amount of uh, money being spent on a primary that has absolutely no purpose as far as I'm concerned. It's obvious that the people want Donald Trump to be the candidate, and it's only members of the party that object to that. But this nonsense of, of and, and look, I, I think we have a great governor. You know, I think he is a superb governor. Agreed. You know, and wished that he had applied himself to just stay on the job until it was finished, and he would have had a fabulous political future. I think he's pretty much, you know, done that in. But my, my question is, when does your party finally decide that they can no longer Ignore what the people want, and it insults us and makes us very angry when they do that. I think you've observed that anger manifest in renewed calls for us to get a new leader for mm-hmm. the, the National Republican Party. Rana McDaniel has overseen far too many losses, and they're not prioritizing the right things, Joyce. Mm-hmm. What we should be prioritizing is voter registration in swing states teaching people about where their early voting uh, precinct is, where their polling place is, getting folks conditioned to banking their vote. That has been deprioritized, and instead they're spending money on these debates that have a very junior varsity energy to them Mm. without Trump on the stage. And uh, I agree that the donors plowing money into uh, Ron DeSantis' super PAC and Nikki Haley's super PAC they're just lighting their money on fire. Mm-hmm. And I don't know uh, if it's just a, a personal dislike for President Trump that causes folks to do that, but he's our horse, and we got to ride it, and we got to see that victory through with smarter tactics than we're displaying. I mean, God forbid if we see Joe Biden uh, re-inaugurated in January yeah. of 2025, we will likely lament the tens of millions of dollars that weren't directly focused on ensuring that Democrats don't out-ballot us. Mm-hmm. Well, you've been to enough of the rallies and other occasions. I saw you up at uh, Club 47 a couple of weeks ago. You know, you cannot see a response like that to anybody else uh, that you see for Donald Trump whenever he stands. And I know people say, well, he's preaching to his choir, but his choir is huge, and we are— right. We are activists. We don't sit around and wait for government to save us. We participate in the process. And so I don't understand how anybody can ignore that dynamic, but they continue to do it. It's such a keen observation that what's unique about the Trump movement is that it is Mm hyper-participatory. The fans of Nikki Haley or whomever else is out there running for president are oftentimes observers, consumers of politics, But whether it's our friends at Club 47 or whether it's the digital warriors out there sharing content uh, or whether it's the 
MAGA grandmothers who are uh, putting their hats on and waving by the side of the road and leading boat parades. Uh, we've got an exciting and welcoming movement. We want to invite more people into the movement, and that's what distinguishes us from the left. Mm-hmm. They always make person to exclude or censor or uh, shadow ban in some way, and they demand this doctrinal adherence uh, to the socialism in a lot of manifestations. And so I, I think that that's why we are the ascendant movement, mm-hmm. but we still have headwinds that we face from the establishment and from the radical left. Absolutely. Well, look, I thank you for not caring what everybody says about you. I've always said I wear them as badges of honor. You know, if they're uh, the last thing I want to do is go quietly. So go loudly into the so-called dark night, Matt. I have uh, Congressman Gates, I appreciate what you're doing because I know it can't be easy with the crowd around you. And please, you know, the next time you're in an elevator with any member of the squad, nah, I'm not going to tell you. But but no, you know what I'm, I'm I, you all know what I want. In words, I know where you were going. We'll uh, <laughs> we'll leave it there. But thank okay. you for all you do, and thanks for inspiring people and giving people hope in the sunshine state. There's a there's a dearth of that, and you you do a great job. No, thank you. I appreciate it. Congressman Matt Gates, you can always check him out at his uh, online. He's got lots of interesting things that he proposes and that he does. All right. I got to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about this uh, uh, Hersey Ellie story because I think I'm so fascinated by it. And then, of course, after me is Eric Erickson. After that is Joe Paggs and then Lars Larson. Starting tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., the morning crew will be back with Jen and Bill. And then at 9 o'clock, Brian Kilmeade at noon, Dan Bongino. And then, of course, I'll be back tomorrow at 3. But I got one segment left today, and I want to talk about this. I'm I'm kind of prepping for my uh, speech tonight, so you will want to hear it. Stay right where you are. All right, so look, I'm, I'm obviously not going to just read you this article, but I have to touch on some of the key parts. It was in Unheard um, on the on the Substack website. And, you know, Hersey Ali starts out by saying that in, in 2002, I discovered a 1927 lecture by Bertrand Russell entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. It did not cross my mind as I read it that one day, nearly a century after he delivered it to the South London branch of the National Secular Society, I would be compelled to write an essay with precisely the opposite title. The year before, I had publicly condemned the terrorist attacks of the 19 men who had hijacked passenger jets and crashed them into the Twin Towers in New York. They had done it in the name of my religion, Islam. I was a Muslim then, although not a practicing one. If I truly condemn their actions, then where did that leave me? The underlying principle that justified the attacks was religious, after all, the idea of jihad or holy war against the infidels. Was it possible for me, as for many members of the Muslim community, simply to distance myself from the action and its horrific results? At the time, there were many eminent leaders in the West, politicians, scholars, journalists, and other experts who insisted that the terrorists were motivated by reasons other than the ones they and their leader Osama bin Laden had articulated so clearly. So Islam had an alibi. 
This excuse making was not only condescending towards Muslims, it also gave many Westerners a chance to retreat into denial. Blaming the errors of the US foreign policy was easier than contemplating the possibility that we were confronted with a religious war. We have seen a similar tendency in the past five weeks as millions of people sympathetic to the plight of Gazans seek to rationalize the October 7th terrorist attacks as a justified response to the policies of the Israeli government. When I read Brussels' lecture, I found my cognitive dissonance easing. It was a relief to adopt an attitude of skepticism towards religious doctrine, discard my faith in God, and declare that no such entity existed. Best of all, I could reject the existence of hell and the danger of everlasting punishment. I'm just going to say aside, does this sound like anybody you listen to every day at three o'clock? Just, just wondering. Russell's assertion that religion is based primarily on fear resonated with me. These are the words of a, a Hersey Ali. Um, I had lived far too long in terror of all the gruesome punishments that awaited me. While I had abandoned all the rational reasons for believing in God, that irrational fear of hellfire still lingered. Russell's conclusion thus came as something of a relief. When I die, I shall rot. To understand why I became an atheist almost 20 years ago, you first need to understand the kind of Muslim I had been. I was a teenager when the Muslim Brotherhood penetrated my community in Nairobi, Kenya in 1985. I didn't think I had even understood religious practices before the coming of the Brotherhood. I had endured the rituals of ablutions, prayers, and fasting as tedious and pointless. The preachers of the Muslim Brotherhood changed this. They articulated a direction, the straight path, a purpose to work towards admission into Allah's paradise after death, a method, the prophet's instruction manual of do's and don'ts, the halal and the haram. As a detailed supplement to the Quran, the Hadith spelled out how to put into practice the difference between right, wrong, good and evil, and God and the devil. The Brotherhood preachers left nothing to the imagination. They gave us a choice. Strive to live by the prophet's manual and reap the glorious rewards in the hereafter. On this earth, meanwhile, the greatest achievement possible was to die as a martyr for the sake of Allah. Hmm... The most striking quality of the Muslim Brotherhood was their ability to transform me and my fellow teenagers from passive believers into activists almost overnight. We didn't just say things or pray for things, we did things. As girls, we donned the burqa and swore off Western fashion and makeup. The boys cultivated their facial hair to the greatest extent possible. They wore the white dress-like thob worn in Arab countries or had their trousers shortened above their ankle bones. We operated in groups and volunteered our services in charity to the poor, the old, the disabled, and the weak. We urged fellow Muslims to pray and demanded that non-Muslims convert to Islam. And during Islamic study sessions, we shared with the preacher in charge of the session our worries. For instance, what should we do about the friends we loved and felt loyal to, but who refused to accept our du'a, invitation to the faith? In response, we were reminded repeatedly about the clarity of the Prophet's instructions. We were told in no uncertain terms that we could not be loyal to Allah and Muhammad while also maintaining friendship and loyalty toward the unbelievers. If they explicitly rejected our summons to Islam, we were to hate and curse them. And here a special hatred was reserved for one subset of unbeliever, the Jew. 
We cursed the Jew multiple times a day and expressed horror, disgust, and anger at the litany of offenses he had allegedly committed. The Jew had betrayed our prophet. He had occupied the Holy Mosque in Jerusalem. He continued to spread corruption of the heart, mind, and soul. So this is just the first part of this, and I will continue talking about this tomorrow because it's just too important to understand what exactly this clash clash of civilizations is. So I thank you for your time this time until next time. And my plan is to be back here tomorrow at three o'clock. If it be his will and he delays his coming, what lies behind us and what lies ahead of us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. So wherever you are, just be yourself. Everybody else is taken. Hey, God bless you. God bless Israel. God bless the United States of America. See you tomorrow. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.